two men rendezvous at a sidewalk cafe on a street corner. The sign above the cafe door reads, before and after. One man is already seated at a table on the bend of the corner. The second man arrives, pulls out a chair, and sits down. The first man is weathered, deep creases scoring his cheeks from nose to mouth. His eyes, wrinkled at the corners, are narrow against the light. The second man is younger, clear-eyed and fresh-faced, though his hands occasionally twitch and his skin seems oddly grayed, as if seen through a dusty window. The two men look at each other, then away, then back. The younger man speaks first. Sorry to keep you waiting. Not a problem. The time seemed to pass. And here I am. Good to see you. The damn waiter didn't see me, stared right through me as if I wasn't there. I mean, it's good that you got here. Too right it is, seeing I very nearly didn't. I remember at one point wondering if I'd make it. A big if. A long pause. The younger man drums his fingers on the tabletop. It's funny, for a couple of minutes right at the end there, all the shooting, I thought for sure I bought it. Did you know? Even sitting here, you know, I still can't believe. Believe what? That it's over. Too quiet? Maybe. I'd like to see more signs of life. Signs of something, anything. Everybody seems dead compared to, compared to us. Well, yes, if you will have it, compared to us. You can't not be changed after something like that. No, no, I, I'm fine. It's the world that's changed. He looks away. Everything looks transparent, made of glass. That waiter, I can see right through him and out the other side. The same way he looked at you. I'm waving, but he's ignoring me. And you, too. You'd think these chairs were empty, the way he's staring right past us. Did you want to order? Oh, he's seen me now, and he's coming over. Damn, he's got customers with him. Those two women. They certainly don't seem dead or made of glass. I do not want to share this table. We may have no choice. The waiter pulls out two chairs, speaks to the women. Will this table do? The older woman smiles, nods. Yes, this is perfect, looking both ways. She sits rather heavily, teetering the fragile chair. The younger woman, still standing, hesitates. Are you sure we, I mean, 
wouldn't it be safer inside? We're pretty exposed here. This is the corner. Nonsense. You know what they say about lightning not striking twice? Take a chair, my dear. He's waiting. The waiter speaks. You want a menu? The older woman shakes her head. Just something to drink. A wine cooler, perhaps, with soda. Make it two. The waiter leaves. The younger woman, now seated, hesitates again. I don't really think I... Don't be silly. A glass of wine will do you good. Keep your spirits up. Yes, yes, I know what you're thinking. It's a dreadful thing, of course. Dreadful. But that's just why we have to fly our colors. Show everyone we're still here. That's my view. The waiter returns, sets down two tall glasses, ice tinkling, bubbles fizzing. Anything else? The older woman speaks. No, no, we're fine. Nothing more at the moment, thanks. But would you take away those empty chairs? They're obstructing the view. And that is A Waiter Made of Glass from the short story and poem collection, A Waiter Made of Glass, read by its author, Verlin Flieger. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. Increasingly, though, especially this season, we've been interviewing authors who have been influenced by the Inklings in some way about their own passion projects. I'm Chris Pipkin, and I am truly outclassed today, joined by one of the world's foremost Tolkien scholars, Verlin Flieger, who is here to talk about her own creative work a short story and poem collection called A Waiter Made of Glass, which is published by Quickbeam Books, an imprint of Signum University Press. Verlin herself is Professor Emerita at the University of Maryland at College Park, where she taught a sequence of graduate and undergraduate comparative mythology courses, Arthurian, Celtic, Hindu, Native American, Norse, to name a few. Since retiring from the University of Maryland in 2012, she continues to teach in a variety of venues, concentrating on modern fantasy with a special focus on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Professor Flieger's publications include Interrupted Music, A Question of Time, J.R.R. Tolkien's Road to Fairy, winner of the 1998 Mythopoeic Award for Inkling Studies, Splintered Light, Logos and Language in Tolkien's World, and Tolkien's Legendarium, Essays on the History of Middle-Earth. She is co-editor of Tolkien Studies, a yearly journal devoted to scholarly examination of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And Professor Flieger's previous fictional works include Arthurian Voices, Green Hill Country, the inn at Corbis Ka. Am I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Corbis Ka, yes. Okay, and, and a pigtail. Professor, Professor Verlin Flieger, it is an honor to have you on the show. It is an honor to be here. I want to thank you so much for inviting me. 
where are you joining us from? Are you are you up in Maryland or DC or somewhere else? I'm in Maryland, just outside DC. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My yeah. I I spent, gosh, about a decade near that area at, at CUA get, when I was getting my PhD. At the university. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you? That's where I got my degree. What oh, wow. Well. How did I not know that? That's wonderful. <laughs> what were you studying? Medieval literature. Great. I so, don't suppose there's anybody in the English department who, who was there when I got my degree <laughs> years ago. Possibly. One of the unusual things about Signum University Press and QuickBeam is that the process of writing is slightly more collaborative than at a lot of other presses. Verlin, what what so far has made working with Signum University Press distinct? Speed. (laughs) They don't waste a minute. Serena sent out an email, which I got, saying, do you have it? We've started a press. Do you have anything you'd like to publish? Well, that's music to an author's ears. <laughs> Publisher asking you. So I said, here's what I've got. And I just looked in the bottom drawer and picked out all the junk that was there and sent it to Serena. And she said, great, let's publish. That's great. It was that easy, which is wonderful. And it makes the whole process so much smoother and more pleasant. And then, of course, there was a lot of back and forth about arrangement, content, how do we sort of put this all together. But Serena worked with me and I think has produced a very very practical and very workably productive arrangement for the short stories, and then some poems. That's wonderful. Yeah. And and you say that this is a random assortment of stories and poems that you had, right? But I think certain themes do certainly emerge, right? That, that kind of make many of these stories and poems stick together. Yes. Well, Owen Barfield said once he was always writing the same book mm. over, and over and over again. And I think without even realizing it, writers tend to be attracted to the same material. And that's what fuels their invention. Yeah. 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 This is, this has been so enjoyable to read through for, for me. How, how would you, if you had to characterize the book, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a departure, at least in terms of genre from the scholarly work that you're best known for. But you've also written creative work. How How is it different from other creative work that you've written? How different is this from my other creative work? Mm-hmm. It was easier, partly because the, the items in it are shorter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that practical. Uh, the other things that I have written and published were novels, and novels take a longer time. Right. You've got elements like plot and characterization and all of that stuff that you have to worry about and integrate. And these were kind of just je d'esprit. I got an idea, I sat down, I started to write it unrolled like thread off a spool and I was done. Hmm. It was much, much easier. And that probably shows up in that 
these pieces are short. They are not artistically demanding. And so they were they were fun to write. They're powerful as well, though. They're brief pieces. They're they're quite evocative. And and you know your facility with words that clearly has been honed over over a lifetime, right? Really, really does shine here, despite you know the fact that you felt like they just kind of rolled off your pen. I, I noticed there's a kind of lighthearted, uh, tongue-in-cheek darkness to to many of the stories. Ooh, tell uh, me about that. Which there, there's a focus, it seems to me anyway, on death throughout, but, but in a, what's the word I want, almost impertinent way. I'm thinking especially of Saturday night, right? Where some dogs are yapping and a husband and wife who are, are, are talking about, about the dogs. Um, they are bickering. Yes. Yes. And, and marriage. right. Yeah. And, and the wife mentions Cerberus, right, or 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 mentions uh, the Hounds of Hell. Anyway, I, I forget which. But the husband ends up going outside of the door and having the door, you know, closed behind him. Uh, and so you have this sort of like slightly gleeful yeah. trapping of of the nasty, you know, husband out outside the door, implying he's he's in Hades. Right. Yes. So enjoyable and so understated. Well, most of the most of the action in the story really focuses on the salad. Yeah. The wife is making with her sharp little knife. And I love that. Even though even though they are talking about the dogs and even though the husband is clearly horrible, right? He's pretty uh, bad. So much of the description is about the salad that she's that she's chopping. What what put it into your mind to write a story focused at the same time on hell and salads. The salads sort of came in on their own, but the inspiration for the story was some yapping dogs in my neighbor's backyard. And I found them noisy, but manageable. But some of my other neighbors were really annoyed at this persistent barking. And that's where the husband sort of arose. Okay. It was easy just to have the wife chopping away. Yeah, yeah. So you you sort of played a Michelangelo card and and put one of put one of your neighbors in 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 Hades. Yes. Thank you. It's <laughs> wonderful. Another, another of the stories that, that to me is dark and evocative of death as well, maybe not quite as humorous, but, but, but so interesting is, is, is Dark Water Cafe. And you mentioned in the preface that a bridge in D.C. over the CNO Canal inspired that. Was there anything else that went into inspiring that? Or did you just like as you're you know, inspired by the detail, by the scenery to write, you kind of you know, figure out what the, what the plot is going to be. I didn't figure it out. It sort of figured me out. But the trigger was just walking home from a dinner out with some friends and stopping on that bridge to look at the water. And it was dusk mm -hmm. and the lights were coming on and the lights in the building on one side of the canal 
were reflected in the water. And I really, for a split second, had the impression that there was a lower story to this building, which was actually just the lights reflected in the water. And I thought, that's really neat. Wouldn't it be fun if there really was something down there or if somebody thought there was? And when I got home, the person who's speaking, the speaker in the story, whom, whose voice I heard as male, just started talking. That's one of my favorites too. I'm glad you like it. It so resonates with something possibly morbid in yeah. in me, but but also desiring that which is unattainable, right? In, in in this life, the the sort of world behind the world, to to use a phrase that one of my guests has has used before, and our desire just to be in another place where we really can't. B. It's part of the reason that I'm so drawn to water and to, to ocean uh, as well, because there is another sort of world reflected, right? And that, and that's unattainable. A there's a mystery. In yeah. Water. And it's, you know, it has a surface, but it also has a depth. You can look into it. You can jump into it. There are all kinds of different experiences. I didn't analyze that as I am doing now. And maybe that's why it was so easy for it to come out yeah. in the writing. So the story read at the top, A Waiter Made of Glass, since the collection is named after that story, I suppose we should talk about it. I loved it. I found it also morbid in, in the best possible sense of the word morbid, right? And and very, again, word of the day evocative, right? But yeah, you say, you say in the preface that it was inspired by a particular shooting that that happened. Just... At the time, the most recent one, I mean, how many shootings have there been? How awful is the situation in this country where everybody has guns and you can be sitting outside at a cafe and suddenly be in the middle of a, of a shootout? Yeah. It's, it's just so random. Yeah, and the, the cafe has the sign above the door that reads before and after. Well, that can be both before you have been drinking and after or before you go in and come out. Mm -hmm. I hoped it wasn't too obvious. No, I don't think I don't think it is. I'm still turning this story around in, in my mind and I think I'm getting the sense of what is happening here. I mean, certainly two of the characters seem to be ghosts. It reminded it reminded me a great deal of the of the great divorce in some ways. Yeah, they're they're dead. But they don't know that. Yeah, not only The Great Divorce, but honestly, if you've ever read All Hallows' Eve by, by Charles Williams, it, 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 it distinctly you know, feels a lot like that as, as well. But I love the, the kind of eeriness. And, and, and again, like you're putting touches of humor within that eeriness. Well, I'm glad it works. So yeah. much is left unsaid. I was a little wary about whether I should put in more information. And then I thought, no, yeah. the information has got to be behind the story. And that's what creates the tension. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you find that balance? You want to explain enough that, th that the reader doesn't feel utterly lost, right? But at the same time, if you over explain the 
sense of ambiance kind of goes away, right? Or, or, or at least is diminished. Stories where I really made a conscious decision when I had finished the story and read it over. And I thought, we ought to put in a little more detail, a little more background so that the reader knows what happened. And then some inner wisdom, I don't know where it came from, said, no, that's exactly what you should leave out. Because yeah. it's what isn't there that creates the tension of the story. And, and in some ways, you know, that that's similar to what I always tell my students about poetry uh, as well, right? That it's not meant to be something that is just sort of easily understood right away because you need to be wondering about it. You need to be working out the details in your mind and thinking about it. And, and that gives it more power to stay with you, right? Because it's a, it's a, in, in part, at least a riddle that you are yes. sort of participating in the creation of that world more, right? And riddles are always, riddles are the things that are designed to get you. And they do. It's like, it's like Tom Bombadil. Mm -hmm. the rings heaven knows i have many times i have read an essay that began who is tom bombard because <laughs> tolkien doesn't tell you and he said i'm not going to tell you and he says it's an enigma and that goads readers into trying to solve it yeah so you hear he's this he's that he's one of the valahari whatever <laughs> yeah Speaking of your scholarly work, your interest in in Tolkien, is it is it hard as you're writing not to compare yourself to writers like Tolkien? Is he is he like sort of a shadow that you're trying to get out from under, or is he more of an inspiration? Well, he's an inspiration in that he did it and he made it work. The it being invention, fantasy, freedom from the ordinary restrictions of gravity and daylight and that kind of stuff. But you're right, he throws a long shadow and it's hard to get out from under him. And all you have to do is look at all the Tolkien wannabes who have written successfully and published trilogies and six-part stories that are clearly sort of coming off Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And and that's I think a way to to stay under the shadow. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that, but there have been times when I'd be writing, you know, just letting it go, and I would look at the screen or the page and say, "Wait a minute, <laughs> I've heard that before." And actual phrases or situations, he's so much a part of my interior furniture yeah. that it, he's hard to get away from. Yeah. I feel generally like I can do scholarly writing more easily than creative writing, even though creative writing in some ways is more satisfying to me. It feels to me as though I'm, I'm exercising different, uh, different muscles when I'm writing 
scholarly stuff mm-hmm. as opposed to creative stuff. Does that does that resonate with you as well, or, or or do you view this all as like essentially like part of the same endeavor? Both your you know scholarly works and your and your creative work is it all part of sort of the same project, or 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 do you view these as fundamentally different types of creation? The answer to both questions is yes, because writing is writing and to in a way to to fence the process off into scholarly and creative is a, a false dichotomy mm. it's writing scholarship is creative yeah. i mean you've got an idea and you're trying to build something so of course it's as creative as anything else it maybe isn't inventive but the idea of trying to capture something and put it on paper in a way that will have that same thing come off the paper to a reader that's a process that works for any kind of writing that you're going to do so it's all good practice what uh, of the short stories you talked about how how several of the stories just sort of came out right or or many of them yeah. did right which which did you enjoy writing most oh gosh the act of writing is such an indulgence i can't say which i enjoyed the most because i enjoyed them all and part of the enjoyment is in discovering what's coming out and then seeing how to shape it and and help it. Most of the stories are very short. There's only one long story and that's Tall Grass. And I enjoyed that as much as the others. And it was just as easy to write. It was a different voice, but it was a voice that it was kind of fun to put on like a like another costume or another dress and and inhabit in a way that being closer to the voices in some of the other short stories like dark water cafe which is also first person both of them i enjoyed enormously but i think i got more fun out of writing tall grass. Yeah, tonally it is it is quite different from the other pieces. Would you say that it's your favorite? I don't really have a favorite. I love them all. And some of my favorites actually got left out because of of intellectual property issues. <laughs> I was stealing from better authors than myself. But I I I think no. I guess the short answer is what inspired Tall Grass. It, it is. It really is so different from from the other pieces, both in terms of its length and in terms of, as you said, the the voice. If someone asked you what it was about, how would you answer? Well, it's about a very different venue because most of my other stories are are urban or suburban, and this one is is open country it's sort of the american west the first sentence came into my head while we were driving on the road from cheyenne to laramie in wyoming and 
we had been vacationing at a dune ranch. So I guess that Western ambience was in, in the back of my mind and in the front of my recent experience. But like all of them, a first sentence came and I trusted it and let the second sentence follow it. And it really did just unspool like thread. Yeah, it's so fun. And and just I yeah. had fun with it. Yeah. yeah. You can yeah. say that. Can I can I interject one please before we get to the poems about tall grass? Because it's one of the things that I like the most about it, which is that it is a dialogue. Mm -hmm. But you do not hear the second voice. You have to infer it from what the first voice is responding to. And that was fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it does pull you in in a way, right? Because you are taking on the um, identity in some way of the younger of the other um, yeah. person. Yeah. Also, I, I, I should mention before we exit the, the stories, the wonderful illustrations uh, really. Austin, aren't those great? Mm hmm. Who was it again? That that um... Emily Austin. Okay, Emily Austin. Austin. Found her. Yeah, they are fantastic, and I haven't seen you know short story collections often you know illustrated, but I love it. Well, and, and the first one, which is of the street corner, that is the scene of the first two stories. Yeah, yeah. But she just caught it, and she she read the story, and she sketched out something and sent it to. Serena and to me, and we both loved it. Yeah, it was right on. I feel like they match so well the tones of of these stories, as well as the a few of the poems are illustrated as well. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Such as uh -huh. such as getting there, right, which is oh, yes. so much fun, and you know your love of of myth really shines through there as well. I wanted um, I wanted to get the sensation of falling or of tumbling just over and over and over, free fall. And her illustrations did so much to sort of make that happen. Would you mind if I read Getting There? And I love it. Absolutely. I heard it read. So this is Getting There. One day I walked right off the world's edge. By mistake, let me assure you. I've no urge to play with danger thrills of that kind. Don't allure me. Still, I found it not unpleasant, if a little unexpected, falling off of there into another where, past elephants whose tusks fantastically carved with demon faces, monkeys staring sideways, lace pagodas wearing tilted roofs supported on their ivory tips, the corners of the world. A love for truth compels me to admit I only saw three elephants, but I inferred the other one on grounds of symmetry and balance, standing with a certain patience on no ground but on a turtle, huge archaic, on whose domed and patterned shell the elephants maintained their slanted footing. You will want to know on what, in this proportionate and weighty plan, the turtle rested. Well, he swam, or rather floated, for I saw no movement of his flippers on an ocean vaster than the night sky over Kansas, 
and about that color in whose depths tin fishes swung and shifted like deep buried constellations. Diving mermen flashed their red gold tails like shooting stars and beckoned me with arms and eyes to join them in green delights, what kind they did not specify. And yet I understood and shook my hair, not in reluctance, but as if to say, not now, I'm falling, catch me coming back on down. I plummeted and viewed in passing strange inversions of the undersides of waves of water inside out and falling upward, maelstrom spirals like black holes to suck at light, but they flew past and on and up until I saw I wasn't falling. I was still and center while the universe curved sweetly out from me like fingers of my hand held out to touch the hand that touched my finger's ends and pulled me in and back to where I came from in that time before I walked the world. Thank you. Yeah, it's... it's you said that beautifully. Well, it's a wonderful poem. So yeah, what, what prompted this poem? What, what inspired it? Again, I do not know. Just the idea of, of falling. You got to trust these things when they come. It seems yeah. kind of silly if somebody proposes it is a serious idea. And if you write about falling, it should be about danger or fear or wanting not to fall. But this became an experience while I was writing that just turned into fun that went on and on and on. I really didn't want it to stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, initially when I read this, because when when poems... When I, when I read poems, and I tell my students this to make them feel better all the time, I have to read them slowly and a few times to actually catch the thread of what's happening. So initially, I glossed over the fact that it was a, you know, it was a turtle floating on an ocean, right? And pictured, you know, space like the Discworld books or something like that, right? And then, but then going back through the, the, the fact of the turtle floating, not in space, but on a vast ocean is, is just so wonderful and 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 seeing the mermen and, and the underside of the waves right is yeah just a lot of fun and 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 and, and dark and deep right but, but wonderful yeah. yeah the which which mythology is it and i'm sorry to have forgotten this momentarily with that that's the origin of the idea of the four elephants holding up the world on top of I, I believe it is is early Indian but I I honestly don't know I just I've got that concept and you do too yeah. in the back of my mind that the world is being supported on the back of a turtle and then there's this <clears throat> the idea of it's turtles all the way down hmm. and it's the it's the absurdity of it and the fact that if you try to question it logically it falls apart well how many turtles are there and what's the turtle standing on but the the idea of this slow suspension that underlies that is what what makes the image work and i couldn't I couldn't give you a literary reference, like here's where you go and look it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I bet that everybody is familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be true. Oh, it must be true. Not real, right? But true. Yep, yep. 
I love the detail of the of the carvings on the elephant's tusks. It's 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 really fun and and brings out another you know an, another facet of that myth, right? That yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so much fun. So, in in general, is, was your process of writing the poems similar to the process of writing the shorter stories? Did they did they just sort of come tumbling out of you, or or and was it more difficult? Or yes. No, they were not difficult. None of this has been difficult. It's been rewarding. And especially the poems, because so many of them, not the elephant poem, but others are, are about grief. Yeah. And it was the, this seems an odd word to use in connection with grief, but the energy of the grief was what fueled the, the writing process. Yeah. In, in general, you know, when, when you are grieving, what, what does it do to that experience of grief to express it in the form of a poem? Would you say poetry is especially suited to this sort of expression or? It is for me. I don't know what it could be for anybody else. And I've never, I've never examined it because if you look too close at things, yeah. it's to go away. Uh, it's just that that was that was how I responded to a very powerful emotion. Yeah. And it's funny, I I've only had two periods in my life in which I wrote poetry. Each one lasted for about a year, and each one came out of some deep crisis. Mm-hmm and made the, made the process endurable. Yeah, there's something that is so deeply personal and, 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 and sharp, but then also so universal about, about these sorts of, you know, feelings and expressions, right? That's, that's at once, you know, so deep down, but then also so deep down in, I mean, all people either have or will, right, feel grief, but they won't all feel your particular grief, right? Which is, in, in some ways, to me, the fact that it takes such a deep personal turn and is still, it seems to me, about death, but but from such a different angle than 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 earlier, the meditative quality on death becomes so much deeper and, and in my opinion so much more powerful as you get as you get toward the end of this volume reading more of those poems thank you for that that makes me feel very good it's powerful and and, and poignant and beautiful but your love of myth comes out as well which is also tethering individual experience to something that is that is also universal the the oh yeah the the myth and 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 culture and you have you know one one poem on the cold hill side right referencing referencing keats keats's about dom Merci. how in general when you write something that is so is so deep and, and particular to you do you find these other interests also coming in and texturing them and especially myth do you see this interest in myth connecting with you still on as deep a level as the rest of what you're sort of writing about? 
Well, yes, of course, because that's who I am. I mean, that's what I what I read, what I think about, what I teach, all of that. But I think you you've used a very a very expressive word, and it's one that I really like: texturing. And that's what how the myths or the knowledge of mythologies contributes to to the concepts, to the images. And it's it's a great word because it does add something tactile to to the words. I would like to borrow that if I may. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's as much yours as mine because it just kind of came out in the midst of our conversation, right? It's a perfect word. Well, thank you so much, Verlin, for joining me and for your for your writing, both scholarly and creative, that has, you know, impacted my life for for sure. And uh, say you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, of course. For, yeah. For giving me the chance to talk to somebody who is so perceptive. Well, thank you very much. And again, listeners, this was Verlin Flieger discussing A Waiter Made of Glass, which you can buy, a collection of stories and poems. And I will link a place where you can purchase that in the show notes. But Verlin, thank you again so much. And well, Chris, thank you. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on a decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. You know, when I, when I before I went to college, I wrote creatively all the time. I know I still do, but during college and after college, when I was reading the great works, it produced such a crisis in my creative writing where everything. You know, I, I would just compare to the, you know, to the to the great writers in English literature, and I was always kind of like, yeah, this doesn't this doesn't match up, right? Lethal. You must never do that. I know. It's funny because part of the reason, of course, that I became an English major in college was that I loved writing, and the the philosophy of the college, and I don't think it was misguided necessarily, was was that well, you know, we don't have a creative writing major instead we steep you in the great works and from out of that right which which i think in in some ways is is really good but it still had this effect on me of of just kind of making it very difficult to to express myself creatively definitely less prolific for about 10 years after you know after going to college but yeah well i think that the notion of that pause I mean, something was really going on right in that time, obviously, but you were just kind of letting it, yeah, instead of trying to work with it, letting it work in you, right, yeah, well, that happened to me only for longer i was I wrote a lot when I was in junior high and high school, mhm. And they were all sort of derivative short stories, imitative, what I was reading. But I made the terrible mistake of bringing a short story to school to show to my classmates. 
and they trashed it. <laughs> they not only trashed it, they grabbed it and oh, no. it into a projectile and threw it from one to another to another. Oh, gosh. And I didn't write anything again for 50 years. Goodness. Yeah. And in that time, things would come to me, and I would think, well, that'd be a good short story. No, don't do that. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. dangerous. So it was all sort of piling up. And I'm guessing the same thing was happening with you. Yeah. And again, I, I mean, the, the well that I could draw from was deepened by studying yes. great authors, right? That's absolutely true. It's just also... Yeah, there's there's a line again in, in four quartets, men whom one ca cannot hope to emulate or something like that, and and he and it, he says in the end, you know, it's 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 not about that. It, it, there's only the fight to recover what's been said and lost and said again. 